The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Um, it's an exciting day. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be releasing this book today. Um, <clears throat> I first uh, came to China in, in 1996 as a Peace Corps volunteer. Uh, we've got another one in my group here, Mike Getty, in the back, uh, who was with me. There were 13 of us. Peter Hessler, who's also uh, a writer, uh, was in our group as well. Um, and it was an interesting time in China, you know, 19, in the 1990s. Uh, things were on the cusp of changing. The state economy was starting to be privatized. Um, you know, the students that we taught in Sichuan province uh, were straight off the farm. And for many of them, they were the first kids who had, who had made it to, to a college. And we were all teaching at colleges, teachers' colleges, uh, throughout Sichuan province. Um, and so I started my, my journey in China there, kind of almost being sent down to the countryside immediately. And then uh, I, I came back, and I lived in Chengdu uh, for a little bit uh, in 2000. And almost like a lot of my students, I ended up as kind of like a, a migrant, uh, moving to bigger and bigger cities. I went from Zigong, which is a smaller city, to Chengdu, which is the capital city of Sichuan province, and then to Shanghai, uh, where I live right now. And I, I moved to Shanghai in 2010 as the marketplace uh, correspondent there. And in 2010, when I moved to Shanghai, um, it was an interesting time to go there, um, primarily because it was hosting the World's Fair that year. And this was a very big uh, event. Uh, for China it was a big event for Shanghai. Shanghai had spent a lot of time preparing for this event and getting this event. They had built subway lines. They had uh, raised neighborhoods and rebuilt them. They had, you know, the entire city in some ways was a construction site for about 10 or 15 years prior to that event. And there was such tumultuous change that suddenly when I arrived, everything was sort of built. You know, they, they, they had basically built it. It was like, okay, we're done. And all you saw around, so it was, it was ready for all, millions and millions of people to come from throughout China, from throughout the world. And it was really an interesting backdrop uh, to, to my first kind of my first year there, uh, this, this whole event and the preparation that they had made for this event. Um, and, you know, looking around, you know, it, it was interesting because at that time as well, so many migrants had come to Shanghai from, from rural provinces throughout China. Um, around 40% of Shanghai were actually YD, right? Were from, from other provinces, right? It's almost half the city, which was, it's incredible, right? Um, and so it reminded me a lot, and since, you know, we're doing this in New York City, I've, I'm going to do a couple uh, small readings today, and they both have something to do with New York, uh, because I, I, New York plays part in, in this book a little. It reminded me, Shanghai, at the turn of the 21st century, it reminded me a lot of turn of the 20th century in New York City. Because here you had uh, this place that had historic economic growth. You had this rise of a wealthy class, you know, happening right in front of your eyes. You know, in Shanghai, in our, in our parking garage of the apartment complex I, I lived in, you know, one of the first Chinese words that, that my son learned was, was Fulali, right, Ferrari. In China, because there was there were Ferraris in our parking garage, because people were, were were investing in these sports cars. Right, we had a Lamborghini, we had a Ferrari, we had. He, he knew all the, the the name of these sports cars. In, in our, <laughs> probably was like three years old, um, you know, which is pretty horrific. Uh, you know, as a dad, I'm like, listen, oh God, how does he know that? But um, I you know, taught him that actually. But you also had a flood of rural migrants. Uh, to Shanghai and a flood of immigrants, right, to New York City. And, uh, you know, at that time, and this is something that was kind of interesting, in the run-up to the fair, uh, Shanghai's City Commission for Cultural and Ethical Progress printed an etiquette guide, and it was called How to Be a Lovely Shanghainese. And it was basically 242 pages of how to be a more civilized resident of Shanghai. Um, and a lot of the people that on the street that I profiled had gotten this book. You know, and a lot of them had it because it was, it was given out to, to, to Shanghai residents. And, um, you know, the reason that I was given out is, you know, you had this mix of farmers and urbanites. And, and 
you know, it, it sometimes shocked foreign visitors how people were behaving, and you know, and they, they didn't want they, the, the state didn't want to be embarrassed, right? And so I'm gonna I'm gonna start um, reading. I'm gonna do a reading from from this part of the book where where I'm talking a little bit about this. And this is from the uh, the second chapter called Better City, Better Life. Better City, Better Life, by the way, was the, the official motto of uh, the World's Fair, uh, the English motto. Uh, the, the, the Chinese motto was Chang Shi Rang Sheng Huo Gong Mei Hao, which is basically the, the city makes life more beautiful. It was a sudden mix of people that struck me as one of the most obvious similarities, and I'm talking about similarities between New York City and, and Shanghai here. The dialects of Chinese spoken by migrants along the street of eternal happiness from provinces like Sichuan, Hunan, and Fujian were just as unintelligible from one another as Italian, French, and German among the European immigrants who flocked to 19th century New York. Both melting pots of new arrivals had been driven to the big city by poverty and a risk-taking ambition that propelled them to drop everything, leave home, and try to make it anew. The immigrants who had arrived on Ellis Island like their Chinese Waidiren counterparts a century later came straight from the farm where their ancestors had lived for as long as they could remember. Many lacked education, refined manners, too. In film footage from the early 1900s taken by a trolley car passenger, New Yorkers scramble around one another to cross the street. They step in front of cars, duck between horse-drawn carriages, and fail to acknowledge those they're cutting off. In another scene, pedestrians jab each other with elbows in a rush to get going. The film was shot at Broadway and Union Square, but swapped the trolleys and carriages for honking cars and speeding scooters, and it could have been any intersection along the street of eternal happiness. I didn't have to dig through too much of my home country's history to find a similar period of economic upheaval that demanded a civilization campaign for the masses either. Hundreds of etiquette books were published in America at the turn of the 20th century that bore a striking resemblance to how to be a lovely Shanghainese. It may seem a very simple thing to eat your meals, yet there is no occasion upon which the gentleman and the low-bred vulgar man are more strongly contrasted than when at the table. Began the chapter on table etiquette, and the Gentleman's Book of Etiquette, published in 1879 in Boston by Cecil B. Hartley. I have seen men who eat soup or chew their food in so noisy a manner as to be heard from one end of the table to the other, fill their mouths so full of food as to threaten suffocation or choking, <laughs> use their own knife for the butter and salt, put their fingers in the sugar bowl and commit other faults quite as monstrous, yet seem perfectly unconscious that they were doing anything to attract attention. The Chinese authors of How to Be a Lovely Shanghainese appear equally aghast at such boorish behavior, <laughs> managing to sound like a nagging parent in a section titled Civilized Eating. <laughs> Sit up straight. Don't put your elbows on the table and avoid sticking your feet out at will or kicking others. <laughs> don't take too much food at once. If you don't have enough, you can take more later. Close your mouth when you chew your food and don't make any licking or smacking sounds. If the food is too hot, wait until it's cooled off. It's not polite to blow your nose or belch during a meal. <laughs> Never put a knife into your mouth, not even with cheese, which should be eaten with a fork, lectures Hartley. Never use a spoon but for anything but liquids. Never touch anything edible with your fingers. Forks were undoubtedly a later invention than fingers, but <laughs> as we are not cannibals, I'm inclined to think they were a good one. <laughs> Pay attention to your chopsticks, how to be a lovely Shanghainese continues. Don't use them to bang on cups. And don't throw them up in the air. You shouldn't throw chopsticks at someone before a meal. You shouldn't fumble with your chopsticks while picking up food or fight with other people's chopsticks. <laughs> Do not be persuaded to touch another drop of wine after your own prudence warns you that you have taken enough, cautions Hartley to 19th century Americans. It is acceptable, it is acceptable though, explains How to Be a Lovely Shanghainese, to secretly spill alcohol on the floor <laughs> if excessive toasting is making you drunk. <laughs> Don't drain the glass in one swallow, it cautions. Don't get carried away at the sight of alcohol and avoid losing control and speaking nonsense, making a scene out of yourself. A government-issued publication, How to Be Lovely Shanghainese, lacked the charm of Hartley's Gentleman's Book of Etiquette. Its chapters were sprinkled with laundry lists of behavior modifications steeped in the Chinese obsession with numerology. Five kinds of consciousness, four kinds of spirit, five dares, and four forevers. There were also the seven don'ts. Don't spit. Don't litter, don't damage public property, don't damage greenery, don't jaywalk, don't smoke in public areas, don't utter vulgar words. Still, Shanghai's government failed to realize its ambitious goals by the time the World's Fair came around. Public property remained largely undamaged, but other than that, low and abided restriction, I commonly saw locals do these don'ts within minutes of walking down the street of eternal happiness. So here we are in this, uh, you know, 
the World's Fair really was sort of this aspirational uh, backdrop um, to to my, my first year there, as well as to this book, um, because China was you know obviously aspiring to be, you know, it was on the world stage, you know, and and I, I think that it it was it was very important, uh, you know, for, for, for for you know basically Shanghai, I think in many ways was the the manifestation of this these these global ambitions. I think that they had this this, this image that that China wanted to portray for itself. Um, and I wanted to show, obviously this is Shanghai. Um, this is taken from uh, Pudong. And, and uh, we, we lived, we moved to the uh, former French concession area, which is in Puxi. Um There is the World's Fair mascot, Haibang. And we lived on a street named Changlelu, Long Happiness Road. Uh, it's about uh, two miles long or so, and uh, it's in the northern part of the former French concession. Uh, now, the French concession, of course, was set up by the French uh, in the 19th century. Uh, it's sort of distinctive from other neighborhoods anywhere else in China in some ways because the French planted this type of tree called the London plane tree, which was very popular back in the 19th century in any kind of uh, you know urban design, they planted them about ten or fifteen feet apart from each other, and they they pruned them in a way in, in Shanghai at least where the the foliage sort of grew towards each other instead of up, and so they were constantly stunting their growth, and they still do that today, and I think it's really the hallmark of the, of that neighborhood, and it's it's a it's, it makes the neighborhood really beautiful in the summers when you have these really thick green tunnels that you sort of walk under and it's it provides shade because Shanghai is so hot during the summer and it provides a, it also provides a lot of protection for a lot of the rainstorms uh, that come through in the summer and typhoons as well. This street uh, Changlu that I that I focused on in the book, it has some some interesting landmarks. One of them is the Jinjiang Hotel. Jinjiang Hotel is on the uh, on the on the right side there, that's the old Jinjiang. The new Jinjiang is on the left. It built a built in the 1980s. It was actually the tallest building at one point in, in Shanghai. Uh, soon to be uh, not the tallest building uh, after, after that. But the Lao Jinjiang, which is the one on the right, uh, that that was built uh, at a much different time in, in, in Shanghai. And actually, at that hotel in, in 1972, Richard Nixon and Zhou Enlai signed the Shanghai Communique. Uh, which opened up trade between the United States and China for the first time. So it's a very interesting uh, piece of history there, sort of set uh, the new world order as far as the economy goes. This street, uh, like many streets in the French concession, um, is filled with uh, Lilong, these alleyway neighborhoods uh, that that you know are really, really fun to explore. Um, obviously, after uh, liberation in, in 1949, after the communists took China, um, you know these these they repopulated this area with with many Chinese, and they subdivided a lot of these apartments and homes. Right? And so suddenly, all these homes that were these mansions for for foreign families became uh, very densely populated. And so a lot of these uh, these Li Longs are, are are sort of that. You know, they're they're densely populated. There's, I think the the hallmark of Shanghai really is the clothes hanging out, of them, <laughs> connecting the two parts of the alley. And when you see uh, photos of Shanghai, that's it. But you know, th- these these alleyways uh, were, were all over the place, and one of them was behind our apartment. This is the view from our living room uh, when we first moved in. Um, and it was very interesting. This place is called Maggie Lane, and, and one of the so I have I have different characters in my in my book, different narratives. There's about five different narratives in this book. One of them actually is a piece of land. That's one of the characters in the book, and and it's Maggie Lane. This was an historic lane that was built in the 1930s, and it was it was it was built well. These were called Shikumen homes. These were like traditional Shanghainese homes, um, and. Uh, as part of the preparation for the World's Fair, um, it w- they, they started to raise the neighborhood because the local government uh, wanted wanted to build something. They wanted to build high high rises like the ones that that I live in. It didn't go well. Obviously, when you look at it now, 
you know, the first thing I, you know, when I opened the, the, the drapes and when we were looking at the place, the first thing I asked is, what is that? Because, you know, here we are in the nicest area of Shanghai, and there's this empty lot with these burned out homes. And you have to wonder, what, what happened here? And I kept hearing the rumor that there was a murder there. But what, what, and in fact, I, I did some digging, and, and this becomes a big part of the book, is that there was a double murder there. And uh, the demolition crew had um, to try and scare people away from this neighborhood. They started setting fires uh, to houses that had people in them. And uh, an elderly couple, uh, the man was, uh, he was a PLA uh, war vet. He had fought uh, for China in the Korean War, um, died. And it became, a, it became a very, there was a very big trial after that that got international attention. This was in 2005, 2006. And um, they were the, the perpetrators, the demolition crew, which was hired by the district government. Um, three men were, were sentenced to death. Two men were sentenced to death, one was sentenced to life. And then the, the government bought the land back, and they didn't know what to do with it, so they just built a wall around it. And so that remained up until this day. And these were two folks who st- who remained inside of this lane. So they lived in one of these homes that were partially demolished. And uh, I saw so, uh, some of the book focuses on their story. Now, after they built the wall, the district government started putting posters like this on, on the wall, uh, which is propaganda for the Chinese dream. So this says, Zhongguo Mongguo, the Hmong, which is China, China's dream, my dream. And that's the other aspirational background and backdrop to this book, is the Chinese dream. And this is the guiding principle of the current leader of China, Xi Jinping. Um, and, and the Chinese dream, uh, at least in his words, is for the renewal of the Chinese nation. And uh, basically what it is is that it's one dream for all of China. And in a time when people are starting to dream dreams in China beyond uh, getting money and 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 wealth, and, and are starting to go into religion and equality and, and, and many different dreams. This one China dream tries to aspire to kind of corral everything into one. And so I, I thought it was kind of interesting that they they had you know put these this propaganda on this particular wall that was built around a neighborhood that was was basically seized from people, uh, and then there was a, a murder there. So when I started looking into this, this was actually before I did the series uh, uh, for Marketplace. I'd done a series of, of uh, radio reports that ended up becoming this book. And so once I started doing the series, I, I, I started focusing on, on certain people that in, in the end would, would become main characters in the book. One of them here is, is, is this young man named Chen Kai. And, and Chen Kai starts the book off, and uh, he's the youngest character in the book. And he probably is the one character who um, accomplishes the most change throughout the book. He goes from being sort of a miserable boy who had a pretty tough family background in, in uh, the center of China. And um, he, he, uh, he, he studies very well. He um, ends up in a good university. He gets a state, he gets a job at a state-owned enterprise um, as a manager. And then he abruptly quits it and becomes kind of his own man. He, he, he finds a job with an Italian accordion maker, just him and this Italian guy. And he, be, he starts to really, because he, he's an accordion player, he, he learns how to an assemble accordion from scratch and so, be, so that he can train other people how to, how to make an accordion in an assembly line. And he makes a lot of money doing that, and then he starts his own little artist cafe that's on the street. Um, but his his business sense for the artist cafe isn't as good as his business sense with the accordion. I sort of talk about that. Another character is uh, Zhao Shiling. She owns a flower shop. And Zhao's from Shandong province. She's from a rural area of China. Um, she came as a factory worker, uh, putting together televisions for a Japanese company. And she makes enough money to start her own flower shop. And, and a lot of her story has to do with trying to uh, make life better for her sons. She has two sons that she brings to Shanghai, but then they run into problems because they don't have the local hukou or the local household registration. And so the sons' lives are pretty much impacted by the return to their hometown, and they both drop out of school and become migrants themselves, just like her. Now, the story that I'm going to play, I'm going to play a story from the series right now, has to do with a box of letters 
that a friend uh, who's Chinese uh, gave to me or lent to me. Uh, she had heard the series that I was doing on, on Marketplace, and she had an entire box of letters that that she had bought at a junk store in the French concession. And they were all addressed to an address on the street, on Changlu. They were from a husband who was in a, a labor camp in Qinghai province. Um, he had been arrested and sentenced to prison for being a capitalist in 1957. And so he was doing hard labor in, in Shanghai province. And if you know the, the geography of China, that's very, very far away from Shanghai. It's uh, you know, thousands of miles away. He had left, uh, he had left seven children and, and his wife in a home on, on Changalu. And so these, there were more than a hundred letters. And, um, I read them and after reading them, I tried to, um, track down any descendants. And I'm going to, uh, play the story that I did for this one. 30 years of letters between a husband and his wife, the husband in prison near Tibet, the wife raising seven children on the street of eternal happiness. Despite all of China's changes, the stucco townhome where they lived is still here. It's surrounded by dumpling stands, boutique fashion shops, swanky hotels, capitalism. 60 years ago, being a capitalist could ruin your life. A government song from the 1950s forecasted painful days ahead for those on the wrong side of communism. After communists took over China, they seized a silicon steel factory in Shanghai belonging to a man we'll call Wang Ming. The problem was officials had no idea how to run the factory. A local official privately encouraged Wang to start a separate factory to help save the reputation of the government one. In a letter yellowed by time, Wang writes in the meticulous calligraphy of China's educated class, explaining what happened next. After I built my own factory, the government sentenced me to prison for making money in an illegal way. I was sent here to Qinghai to be reformed. It was a thousand miles away. In a letter dated September 6, 1958, Wang's wife, Li Shuyin, writes to her husband that life at home is getting difficult. Dear Ming, we've run out of money. I've had to sell a lot of our things to get by, but I've just found a job at a factory. The eldest daughters are taking care of the younger ones, so please don't worry. Work hard and accept your re-education. Becoming a new person is the only way out. Re-education meant that Wang had to unlearn things like individualism and capitalism. Wang worked at a labor camp where prisoners were routinely beaten and starved. Wei Xiezhong, a retired professor in Nanjing, was a fellow inmate of Wang's. The camp was in the desert. If you tried to escape, you'd die from exposure, so there weren't even any walls around it. Wei remembers barely surviving China's famine in the early 60s. Tens of millions of Chinese starved to death. I remember going out in the morning and seeing inmates too weak to work, leaning against the walls. After the sun went down, I'd come back and they were dead. Back on the street of eternal happiness, Li Shuyun continued to struggle. In a letter to her husband in 1964, she says she's so poor that she's had to give away their youngest daughter. She was adopted by the family of a carpenter. Don't worry, someday we'll be reunited. As long as you diligently study proletariat thought and get rid of your bourgeoisie ideas. Proletariat thought, bourgeoisie ideas, the letters are full of these slogans. Wang and Li wrote these things to please government censors who were inspecting their mail. But in 1970, Wang ignores the lingo in a letter to his wife. Dearest Chu Yun, it's my fault that you're alone with all these burdens and responsibilities of raising our family. I feel so alone. Please send pictures of the family so my homesickness can be cured. There are more than 100 letters between Wang and Li. They discuss how their seven children are growing and changing, becoming adults and getting married without the guidance of their father. After reading all these letters, I began looking for Wang and Li's family. I started their old home on the street of eternal happiness. An elderly neighbor tells me they left years ago. The father died, she tells me, but the mother's still alive. She left China five years ago with her only son to go to America. I tracked down Wang Ming's son in New York City. Before he agrees to talk to me, the son asks that his family's real names not be used. He still has sisters back in China, and the family's been through enough political trouble as it is. Wang Jie is 56. He lives with his mother in the first floor of a house in the Chinese community of Flushing. 
Li Shuyun is now 87. She's suffering from Alzheimer's. Wang spent his life taking care of her. He never got married. Wang works at a factory repairing cell phones. He earns minimum wage. It may not be the American dream, but Wang says he's okay with that. After the hell my family's been through, this is heaven. Wang tells me his father died three years ago. He spent his last years in a nursing home, which is odd in China, where it's customary for the children to care for parents at home as they die. Wang doesn't explain why. But when I ask him if he blames China's government for what happened to his father, he hints at how his family saw his father. His salary was good, and we could have all lived a stable life, but he was unsatisfied and wanted to make more. He should have known running his own factory was illegal. Wang doesn't like to think about his life back in China, but one memory stands out. When Wang was 20 years old, his father was released from prison. Wang remembers going to the Shanghai train station with his sisters to pick him up. The problem was we didn't know what he looked like, and he didn't recognize us either, so we missed each other completely. After looking for some time, they went home and waited. It was on the street of eternal happiness where he finally met his dad. Today, the family home has the same weathered red door and the same creaky stairs, but it's surrounded by a completely different China. The propaganda music from decades ago is gone. A street musician prefers to play songs from pre-communist China. I asked Wang about the letters. Would he like to see them? He doesn't even pause to think. No, he says. They weren't anything special, he tells me. Talk to any Chinese who lived through that time. We all have the same stories. He says his parents' letters should have been left in a trash can years ago on the street of eternal happiness. In China, I'm Rob Schmitz for Marketplace. So, um, I, I visited Wong um, a few times here in America. I was able to come to New York and, and, and do some reporting and talk to him. He, after he, so when I first talked to him, he was working, he was actually repairing cell phones at an, at an, on an assembly line uh, with other, for a Korean manufacturer, and, and he was with, all the other employees were all Chinese, and he lived in Flushing, so he's surrounded by all these Chinese signs, and he's dumpling, so he basically was living in China, right? He's still, you know, really living this very Chinese existence. At one point in my reporting, he finally quit his job, and, um, he uh, he was starting to collect unemployment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this part of the book, and then uh, we'll, we'll take some questions. This is my last reading. Wong had adjusted to life in America. After six years on the assembly line, he had quit. He was now collecting unemployment benefits. Each month, the government sent him a check for $700, around the same amount he had been making at the factory. He told me it was more than enough. Surviving the worst famine in recorded history alongside his siblings and an unemployed mother had taught him frugality. Plus, now that he wasn't working, he could spend more time taking classes at the library to improve his English and earn his GED. When I asked him what his goal was, he removed an envelope from his bag. This, he said, withdrawing a, nightly, uh, a neatly folded pink sheet of paper. It was a carbon copy of a multiple-choice exam he had taken a couple of days ago. On top of the paper was a logo for the New York City Transit Authority. Under that was written, Revenue Equipment Maintenance Exam. Forty blanks were filled with letters written in Wong's careful penmanship. You want to work for the MTA, I asked. It's an exam for a mechanical engineering job, similar to what I did back in Shanghai, he said. If I pass, I'll fix subway card machines. There are usually openings for this job. I just, just think about how many card machines are always broken. There's a lot of work out there, and they pay you $60,000 a year. This was something Wong could relate to, taking an examination in the hopes of landing a stable government job. It was familiar to anyone from China, where people competed for civil service positions the same way. Rainwater from his jacket dripped out of the pink answer sheet as he held it out for me. He carefully wiped the sheet dry and returned it to the envelope. Wong told me he was also taking classes in Manhattan to become an office assistant, but my English has to improve before I have any hope of finding a job, he said. Wong wasn't in a rush to find work. He had spent his childhood learning about the evils of capitalist America from his school textbooks, but when he arrived in New York, he discovered his capitalists treated their poor much better than the communists did back home. The U.S. government gave Wong's mother $200 worth of food stamps each month. Its Medicare program paid for a nurse to arrive each day at their home to take care of his mother while Wong attended his free GED classes at the public library. Wong told me that between his mother's welfare payments and his unemployment benefits, they could afford rent while putting some money away each month. The way he saw it, he had to be pretty stupid to mess up an arrangement like this. I was also eligible for thousands of dollars worth of food stamps each year, he told me, but I said no. I thought it would look bad. Wong's favorite part of the day was the range of classes he took at the library. He smiled when he told me about studying world history from an American perspective and reading Shakespeare in the Bard's native tongue. 
He spoke about his prospects with the excitement of a teenager. His parents had lived long lives, he told me, and he had learned there would be plenty of time left to start over in his adopted country. In America, you're never too old to begin again, he said. I'm going to skip ahead here. It sounds like you're pursuing the American dream, I said. Wong thought for a moment. I don't see it that way, he said. Life in Shanghai wasn't bad either. Before I left, we lived in a nice neighborhood, and the food was cheap and good. A lot of people asked me why I came to the U.S. when China has so much opportunity now. I told them the main reason is the water and the air are so much better in America. Plus, I had waited 13 years for a visa, and my chance finally came, so I took it. But I've learned that, for me at least, there isn't much of a difference between living in America or in Shanghai. Uh, sorry. Oh, that's it. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's it. Okay. I think I'm ready for... Okay. You can tell there is a lot to be gained from reading the book. But since most of you haven't read it yet, let's open the floor for questions. And when you ask your question, please identify yourself. Okay. Um, my name is Larry Bridwell, and I teach at Pace University International Business. Um, I noticed in your biography that uh, you did an expose on Mike Daisy's account of Apple. I saw the play at the public theater, and it was pretty powerful. And then I subsequently found out that there was some inaccuracies or maybe distortions. I'm curious as to how you got into this, and if you could elaborate a bit on your experiences. Yeah, in, re in reference to the Mike Daisy story? Right. Yeah, well, that was a This American Life. Uh, I, I had actually heard that story, not, I didn't see it in New York because I didn't live in New York, but I heard This American Life did, you know, they they uh, did an entire hour that de was devoted to that monologue or part of that monologue. Um, when I heard it in Shanghai, because I'm, I'm obviously a This American Life listener, it, a lot of the things in that in that monologue didn't really ring true to me. You know, he, he, he was talking about factory guards that had guns. Uh, if you've been to China and seen a factory, you know you know that there's no factory that where guards are you know, hanging out with guns. Usually they have a container with tea. And <laughs> sitting there with tea. Um, but he also said a lot of other things that, that, that I thought didn't seem right, didn't set well with me. And you know in that, in that episode, uh, they talk about that it was fact-checked. And so... I thought I would check it out, and, and I didn't think it would be that difficult because in the in the monologue, he has a translator named Kathy. And so what I did is I just Googled Kathy. He was in Shenzhen, so I Googled Kathy Shenzhen and Apple. And, or I'm sorry, not Apple. Kathy Shenzhen and uh, translator. And the, the first thing that came up on Google, I didn't even have to click in it. It was, it was, it was a phone number for a, a translator in Shenzhen. Her name was Kathy. I called it, and it was her. She had worked with Mike Daisy. And and so I asked her, you know, I asked her a lot of questions about the monologue. Um, first of all, she didn't know that he had done anything like that. He had told her that he was writing an article. And then once she understood what was going on, um, I started asking her questions about what they'd seen. And uh, she pretty much refuted everything that, that, that's in that, that that's in that, that monologue. So uh, so then that I, I went down to Shenzhen and. Then that became this this episode called Retraction that was on This American Life. Wait, it's coming. So in your broadcasting, while you were in China for Marketplace, did the Chinese ever try to make you retract anything you said, or did they influence your daily talking you did? No, no, I think that for the most part, foreign journalists um, are not interfered with in that way. Um, that's not to say that you know life is is easy as a foreign correspondent in China. I mean, I think the police meet with me on a quarterly basis. They meet with uh, my uh, research assistant, who's Chinese, uh, more often. Uh, they. Um, Oftentimes, actually, in the last two years, I've seen an uptick on this when we are doing a story that is a little sensitive. Uh, I'll show up in, usually it's in rural China somewhere, and a police car will surface. Not a police car, it's an unmarked car, but uh, they're definitely police. Uh, 
that follow us around, make sure that we're, we're safe, um, <laughs> and prevent us from reporting. Because, you know, I'm not going to be able to talk to people, really, if, if these, uh, you know, very large men in black T-shirts and crew cuts are, are, you know, kind of sitting there staring at us, you know, and intimidating the people that I'm talking to. Actually, recently, we, we actually, it's not that difficult to lose them on, on these. Uh, we, we, we sometimes, you know, I've gotten pretty good at this, where, where I, I ask the driver to take some weird route, and we usually end up losing them, at least for some part of it. And, um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's, I think, that's the interference you get. And, of course, the people we talk to, uh, you know, when, when, I, when I talk to someone, I, you make it clear, look, you know, you don't have to talk to me. You might, might get in trouble with this. Um, and so I think it's really important, especially in rural areas, so that they understand uh, what the ramifications are if they, if they talk to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, leading with the Loose Foundation. So um, it's a little, uh, you know, in the heart of the Shanghai, right, in the French concession, uh, and the, you know, the citizens' life, you see that yeah, it's a really good question. I think that depends on what your definition of Shanghai is, because I think I think Shanghai for Shanghai Ren or for people who who are of Shanghai from Shanghai, they have I think in some ways an outdated vision of uh, a version of their own of their own hometown, because Shanghai has become something completely different than what they grew up with, right? It is now, in many ways, a very, very diverse city with people from all over China, from all over the world, right? It's really a global city now. And I think that Shanghai Ren are, in many ways, in a position where they have to share this city. And they get it back every Chinese New Year because everyone leaves, right? The foreigners leave, the YG Ren, they all leave, they go back home to their farms. And they, that's like basically the only two weeks of the year when there is no one around except the local Shanghainese, and they've got the city to themselves finally. But I think, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question because I think Shanghai's, the definition of Shanghai has changed a lot over the last 10, 20 years. Um, it is no longer this city that, you know, where, where it has its own language. It still has its own language, obviously. But even that is becoming harder and harder to protect because as, as you know, as you have more and more migrants living there, that language is starting to sort of kind of be, you know, just naturally phased out. You know, my son goes to a local school, and every Friday, this was when he was in kindergarten, every Friday they spoke Shanghainese at this school just to try and preserve that language. And that was a local effort to make sure that the kids at least knew something in, in, in Shanghainese. And for those of you who, um, who aren't as familiar with China, you know, Shanghainese is a, is a dialect of Mandarin, but it's it's... It's so different from Mandarin uh, that if, if you hear it, it's, it's almost, if, if you're from Beijing, you're, you're not going to be able to understand what, what anyone's saying. You'll understand traces of it, but it's hard. Um, so I think, yeah, Shanghai's changed a lot. You know. Hi. Um, I'm a um, freelance art historian and architectural historian. And my father and his family grew up in Beijing. Uh, my, wife, my dad was born in 1910. Well, uh, there was still a Qing Empire. Wow. Uh, my uncle migrated to Shanghai to become a banker and had a house in the French concession. And I'm just wondering now, um, you know, places like India, Burma, um, and other countries that had a colonial history are now sort of reinterested in their colonial architecture. Yeah. And preserving it and restoring it. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if that is true in Shanghai, which is has always been such an international uh, city. Yeah. The the city of Shanghai, I think, does a really good job at this. Uh, they, you know, they're 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 criticized for a lot of things, but I think one thing that they do pretty well is that they've retained 
in many ways, a lot of the historical um, uh, value to, to especially the, fr- the former French concession. When you walk down a lot of these roads, you'll see, I mean, plaques up there like, you know, Bajin lived here, or, you know, you, you'll see all these, you know, kind of homes that have been preserved um, in, their, in their same state, and there's a lot of rules about what, you know, how these can be modified. In many ways, they can't. And um, so I think it's funny because uh, much of the rest of China <laughs> raises everything they see, right? I mean, it's just like, whatever. And they, you know, and there's a lot of cultural... You know, and, and historical structures that are completely raised, but I think I think Shanghai has always had this kind of. I mean, the, the city government of Shanghai, I think, does a really good job at these types of things, and they also do a really good job at planning the city. You know, it's a well-planned city. You know, when you go there today, you know, the the, the, the public transportation there is phenomenal. It's just amazing. It's really well done. I mean, New York could could learn a bit from from going to Shanghai and checking it out. Because the, the the state of the subways, for example, it's it's just everything runs pretty well. The you know, the, the airport's amazing. You've got um, you've got two bullet you know bullet train stations where you can just be whisked away to Beijing in five hours. I think the hardest thing you is know? coming from Shanghai, Pudong Airport to JFK. Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you come to an American airport after after being used to a Chinese airport, you know, standing in line for two hours, you're like, what what is this? <laughs> Because, you know, in a Chinese airport, I can get there. You know, I fly all the time. I get there about half an hour before the flight leaves, and I'm good. You know, because I can just I just go right through security. There's no line because there's so many people working there, right? And, and it's just it's very comfortable, and it's very modern, right? Um, yeah, so when I come back here, I, yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know, they, I think that they've, they've done a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of interesting structures that are still up. I mean, there's a lot that's been, been torn down, but it's not. It's not. It's not like They could have done worse. Yeah. So, um, so socialism seems to be more of like an edge. Um, actually, a good friend of Rob's, but I don't know who's Um So, there's a lot of talk about socialism right now in the U.S. political uh, election contest. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think China's a real socialist state. You know, it, it never really was. You know, it's a it's a it's a communist state in name only, really. I mean, it's it's a you know they've taken the best things of different systems. I mean, at at, at, at in the beginning, I think it was aspiring to be that. You know, they took you know Marxism and Leninism and, and tried to put it into uh, this mix of, of Maoism, really. But you know, right now the way that it stands, I mean. You know, for it to be socialist, I mean, it's it's there's no way that it is. it's it's a it's a, it's a what is it? It's a it's sort of a it's an authoritarian state. It's in many ways a police state in some ways, uh, with a with a, a runaway capitalist system that is pretty unregulated. So um, so yeah, and even that definition probably isn't very accurate. Um, but uh, it's. You know, it's it's not really. I think uh, it's it's not socialist. Yeah, so I don't. I mean, I you know, I think I think the, the closest thing you get to socialism today is probably in Scandinavia. Yeah. Hi, my name is Tom Hoffiger. I work with Teach for America. I spent five years uh, working for Teach for China. And when I was in Vietnam for two years, I would go to the same noodle shop all the time. And then when I went back, when I was living in the U.S. every summer, I would see this same man at the same noodle shop. And we would have kind of a similar conversation each time. And, and toward the end, I noticed there were all these high rises coming up around me, this tiny town of 200,000 people. And I said, wow, there's so many changes. How, how is this affecting you? He just looked at me with this this, this look of resignation. And he said, well, you know, everything is changing here same for us every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the change or, or not change in 
in pessimism or yeah. apathy for the kind of everyday person that you encounter? Yeah, it's an important question. Um, <clears throat> there's a character in my book named Auntie Fu. I didn't really talk about her, but um, she's one of the more uh, entertaining characters in this book. Auntie Fu's in her 60s, and... Um, close to the gentleman who worked at your noodle shop, she really hasn't changed that much. And she really hasn't um, changed how she lives her life uh, really at all. And, and in many ways, she's baffled by all of the wealth that's happening around her. And so she turns to a series of, of pyramid schemes to, to try and, and get rich as quickly as she can. Um, and she takes me to these investment meetings for these pyramid schemes. Um, selling all sorts of um, pretty crazy products uh, from uh, from this uh, kind of online shopping thing that's on a Pac-Man arcade kind of device to uh, sexual health pads that you put in your underwear. Uh, so, you know, in the book I talk a little bit about this, but a lot of that is me trying to, to convince her that, 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 that these are scams. And I think that she she is of the generation that, you know, she's in her 60s, she's of the generation that grew up during the Cultural Revolution. She uh, didn't go to, a, she didn't get a proper education because schools were, were, uh, were, many of them were closed down because teachers were targets during that time. She didn't really have to make a career decision for much of her life because the party made that decision, right? She was sent down. Um, and then, you know, later on after Mao died, she, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the folks in her generation were sent to a factory or something like that. And so they didn't really make their own career decisions at all, you know. Um, so I think, I think for those folks, it's hard for them to adjust to this new uh, capital system in China. It's very difficult for them um, uh, because they, they grew up in such different times. And I think that this is, a, this is an issue for that generation. But, you know, broadly speaking as well, it, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that... Um, you know, there's a lot of people that that I think that the Western media doesn't really cover in China that that have sort of been left behind from a lot of the uh, the economic prosperity that we've seen in China. You know, there's we, you know we we often talk about the you know the Chinese consumers, the the middle class. Um, you know, the, they're sending their kids to the U.S. university and things like that. But you know, that's you know only ha- half of China lives in urban areas. Um, and a small portion of them are able to afford to send their children abroad, I think, at this point. But there's a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people, that are still in rural China that still haven't made it. And I think going forward, that presents a pretty big challenge, I think, for the party and for Xi Jinping. Um, and I think that a lot of the campaigns that we're seeing, the political campaigns that we're seeing from Xi, a lot of those campaigns are aimed at that population. The urbanization campaign, for example, is trying to make life better for that population. The anti-corruption campaign, um, a lot of the corrupt officials obviously are in local areas, um, and that is trying to clean that up as well. I think that the party understands its historical roots. It knows where it came from very well, and it knows that if this population doesn't have a future to look forward to, that it could be in trouble. Then I'll ask a question. Oh, okay. Um, throughout the book, you describe people and their relationships with each other, mm-hmm. and they're often not very happy relationships. And Auntie Fu is one of them. Yeah. She and her husband are they're bickering at each other yeah. all the time, screaming from yeah. your description. Hurling of abuse, it. basically. And lots of domestic abuse, mm-hmm. yeah. um, men beating up on their wives mm-hmm. and having mistresses or second wives. Mm-hmm. Um, is this old China coming back? Is this new China? What do you make of this? I think that's changing a little, but I think that the, the characters in the book that that has a lot to do with, for example, Auntie Fu and Uncle Feng, they're an older generation. Zhao, I think you were referring to Zhao Shiling. She's from Shandong. She comes from a town that's close to the hometown of Confucius, and um, she's the she, flower shop. She's a flower owner. shop owner, and she always she always says uh, her dad always told her that Confucius hated women, 
Uh, and then she said, well, why did he marry one? Uh, but uh, she, you know, she was beaten by her husband uh, before she left and just basically came to Shanghai to, to, to on her own. Um, and when I went to her hometown uh, to visit her hometown, uh, most of her friends were routinely hit as well and it's, it wasn't uh, an unusual thing um, and a lot of the men in the, in the town that, that they're from also uh, if they have money they've got a second they've got a mistress and, and they're pretty open about that um, and that's I think something that is probably more typical of rural China um, but I think you know in Shanghai in Shanghai I think it's a little different but yet you know I know you're giving me the look like, oh, you don't agree with that. But I, I think I think I think Shanghai is a little more progressive than that, in the sense that if you're from Shanghai, it's it's, it's a little more progressive. But but yeah, it's but a, it's a big issue. But you that that Uncle Fung yeah. had a mistress. Oh, he does. Well, I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah, yeah, you're right though. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a big issue, and and I think that a lot of it has to do with just uh, the way that, that you know China's culture. Yeah. My name, my name is Jessica Vincent. I work for National City. Um, so you obviously got to get you know, a really close, in-depth look at these characters, people's lives. How long did it take for you to kind of establish that trust? I know you bought mm-hmm. Pancakes, Uncle Fung, you kind of interacted with them you know, day in and day out, but yeah. how long before you kind of felt like you could delve into something? It depended on the character, you know. You know, when I first started this, I was, you know, I was many of the characters, actually, including Uncle Fung. I, I, I approached them with, I have a, a huge microphone, right? So it's pretty clear what I'm, what I'm doing. Right? You know, the, the, the foreigner with the uh, like huge microphone that looks like this fuzzy big microphone, and um, you know, a lot of people say, I don't know, you know, I don't want to talk to you. But most people actually were fine with it because actually a lot of the people on on, on Changalu, they're they're they own their own businesses. There's a lot of like there's a lot of uh, shop owners, and when you're in their space, it's their space, and they're not really scared of that. And the other thing is that for many of them, when I when I first came to them, you know, it's not like I came up and said, "Oh, I want to talk about the Cultural Revolution. Let's talk about the famine." You know, you know, I'm not talking about these sensitive things with them at least not up front, and, and it's not where I'm directing the conversation. If they're going to bring it up, they'll bring that up themselves. But uh, as an economics reporter, I'm there to talk about money. And if there's anything that's, that the Chinese are comfortable talking about, <laughs> it's money. Usually they're asking me, how much do you make? You know, and like, well, how much do you make? And, like, and then you start talking, and then, and then finally after a while, you know, it, it veers into, into politics, right? Because, you know, everything's political. So... Um, so yeah, you know, I think certain characters, uh, actually for the characters that I focused on, I didn't have, I think most of them, pretty they opened up pretty quickly. Uh, you know, certain details came later with certain, you know, like for Zhao, like a, the, a lot of the details of her, how her husband treated her, obviously that didn't come out at first, but it was a natural thing involved, and you know, I became friends with with all these folks, and, and I'm, I'm good friends with Zhao, and, and, uh, and, and you know, there's a lot of things that I did, a lot of things I didn't put in the book either. Hello, my name is John Bartman, I'm a member of the public, and uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us about the Chinese people when they're not working. Uh, when it's their own time, yeah. and it's their vision, they can do what they want, <coughs> it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a waste on TV. Yeah. In their own time, they're usually working. <laughs> Oftentimes, they are actually. A lot of the folks that I know, for example, Zhao, she works all the time. You know, she works. She works from about five thirty in the morning, where she gets orders from the, the, the flower market, um, to about about nine ten in the evening. And uh, she'll go away and have her her next door neighbor kind of look after the shop when she's having lunch or something at home because her home's not too far away. But I would say that she works most of the day, and she does not take a day off. She doesn't take a single day off. She'll she'll take a day, you know, she'll take a few days off for Chinese New Year every year, but that's about it. Now, uh, what are what's Auntie Fu doing in her 
spare time. She's dragging <laughs> me to investment meetings, and she's going to all these different investment meetings. She, she goes to an underground church. She's religious. Uh, but the underground church also has sort of a scam artist running it, uh, who is this guy named Preacher Jung. He's in the first chapter about Antifu, who um, who insists that they all, you know, it's it's you know it's a, it's a it's a typical thing, but who insists pretty heavily that everyone has to before they leave that day give a tenth of their income to the church. So she gets involved in a lot of these things, thinking that she's going to make money. Um, CK. He's a musician. He plays music, and he goes well. Up until he became really religious, and you know, there, there's there's a there's a path that he takes, sort of that goes towards Buddhism. He becomes a devout Buddhist over the course of the book. Now, in his free time, um, he is meditating, and then he goes to uh, he has a master out at a remote temple outside of Shanghai that he goes to pretty religiously. Uh, who am I leaving out? But yeah, I think that it, it's it's sort of all over the board, and it depends on how old they are. It depends on their economic back, background. But um, but those are that's that's a good sampling for you. Herb, Herb, well, you do not raise any subject outside of China. Don't refer to the U.S. or anything. Do the Chinese ever refer to anything outside of China or anything international, or do they, when they are leading the conversation, do they only refer to their own lives in their own country? Oh no! I mean, I know, well, first of all, that's that's hard to generalize, but I think everyone that I know is talking about a lot of things that we talk about here. You know, they're 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 talking about news uh, throughout the world. They're they're talking about. Um, you know, and when, especially when I'm with them, they're asking me a lot of questions about America, right? I mean, a lot of a lot of talking to my friends is, is, is them asking what I think of this or what I think of that. Why do Americans have so many guns? You know, th- these kinds of things. They're they're pretty typical, right? And then a lot of it's this uh, mutual education where I talk a little bit about uh, the gun issue in, in America, give some historical context, and and, and they're very curious about that. You know, and and um, you know, talk a little bit about the election process in America, and and they're also very curious about that. I think they're very curious about the current election cycle as well. I think they're watching it, uh, especially. I mean, it's it's inter- it's quite entertaining for Americans. Uh, it's, I think very entertaining for the Chinese as well. Last question, John. John Lowe, also at the National Committee. So the perennial question for authors about books uh, on China. Uh, would you like to see this translated and published in Chinese? Would it have an audience other than the curious who want to know what do the foreigners say about us? Um, and would you have to excise, would you, you imagine you would need to excise passages uh, for it to be published in China? Yeah, um, I have signed a deal with the Chinese publisher, uh, so it will be published in China. Um, it took it was it was a negotiation and, and I had to look at you know obviously there were things that they um, knew were going to be problematic <clears throat> but and when I entered into the conversation I wasn't sure that even you know before I before I met with them I wasn't sure whether I would go forward or not but I, I was open to it I wasn't going to say no right away and I, I, I wanted to see what um what they might have issues with. When I saw it and when we talked about it and we talked about the vision of the book, um, I was pretty happy that the, the publisher shared, you know, the, 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 the person that, the editor who's in charge of it, um, he really liked the book. He, he thought that there would be a market for it. I wasn't sure myself. I told him, I don't, I don't know if there's going to be a market for this, you know, honestly. But, but he, he, he thought that there would be. We'll see who's right. Uh, and then we went over um, some of the, the changes that would have to be made for it to work. I didn't see the changes. For me, if these changes would affect the narrative or would affect the theme, the overall theme of, of the book, I wouldn't have gone forward. Uh, but it didn't. You know, and actually, 
the changes were far fewer than I thought they would be at this stage with the publisher. So, so yeah, um, I'm going forward with that. Um, it will also be trans- it also be translated into um, into um, complex characters. So it'll be in the Taiwanese market in the Hong Kong market. We have run out of time, but we do have copies of the book for sale, and the author has said that he's willing to sign them. So please join me in thanking Rob for a very interesting program. Thank you.